Hello, and welcome to the City Church Evansville podcast. My name is Sean Little. I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City. Thank you for joining us. For the past several weeks, we've been in a series entitled Zero Hour, What Will You Do? We've been looking into the book of Daniel at the story of a few courageous young men whose beliefs forced them into a zero hour, do or die situation. Today, lead pastor Jeff Kincaid concludes Zero Hour. Moms, as I said, we love you for so many reasons. But one of the reasons that we love you is that you have the capacity to say some hilarious things without even trying to say them. And I don't know if any of you saw this, but this past week on Twitter, people were sharing some of those funny things that moms say under the hashtag mom quotes. Did you see these? Let me read some of them to you. Here's a, here's a few that I thought were particularly funny. First of all, the first one, my mom frequently forgets the name for cargo shorts and calls them purse pants. <laughs> Did you see that? Here's another one. Another person sent in a screenshot from their phone with a text from mom that asked, what's my email address? One mom asked her daughter, can you order dad this shirt from the Gap website? The daughter said, sure. But then her mom asked, oh no, it's 1030. Aren't they closed? (laughs) Here's one of my favorites. I think I've even heard this in my house before. One guy said that his mom used to say, if you kids didn't cost so much, I could drink wine that comes out of a bottle. And then last one, one kid sent this one in. I tell my mom that I've done all my homework, and she calls me fake news. (laughs) Moms, we really do appreciate you guys very, very much. If you would, let's, uh, let's, let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you so much for the mothers that are represented in this room today. They've made so many sacrifices. Lord, for those that may be new mothers... Maybe this is their first Mother's Day. Lord, would you encourage them this morning? Would you give them the courage, uh, the endurance that it takes to be a mom? It's not an easy job, that's for sure. Lord, this morning, as we look into your word, would you speak to us? Lord, would would you change us? Would you give us courage this morning, Lord? We pray that you would, as we leave here today, when we leave here today, that we would be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, for those of you who are new to City Church, we are in a series that we've called Zero Hour. What will you do? And what we mean with that question is if you were in a situation in which you had to deny Christ or experience significant persecution, what would you do? Would you stand for Christ regardless of the consequences, or would you deny Christ? Now, conventional wisdom would say that this is not the kind of thing that a pastor uh, should speak on on Mother's Day. But for many reasons, maybe, maybe it's the Lord's leading, maybe you would call it gut instinct, I felt this year that perhaps the best thing to do would be to throw out conventional wisdom about what a pastor should preach on around Mother's Day and do something that might wake us up as a church to the significant changes that are happening around us in our culture. As I've said over the course of the last few weeks, there are many leading 
well-respected Christian thought leaders who are warning that there are signs that believers in Christ in America will soon begin to face very real persecution for our faith in Christ. Those of you who are students here today, that you would face persecution for your faith in Christ. For adults here today, that you would face persecution for your faith in Christ. Fortunately, this isn't something that we've had to deal with very much here in America, but if it came to that, would you be ready to stand firm in your faith? Now, for both inspiration and insight into how to handle ourselves, if we were ever to find ourselves in our own personal zero hour, where we either have to deny Christ or be persecuted, we're looking at three scenarios from the book of Daniel in which four young Jewish men courageously stand up for their faith in the midst of a culture around them that is opposed to everything that they believe. I'd like for you to turn with, you, uh, turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Daniel chapter 3 again this morning. Daniel chapter 3, and I'll meet you there in just a moment. Last week, we ended with a cliffhanger from this passage in Daniel 3, and I said that under no circumstances should anyone read your Bibles to find out what happened, not to read ahead. I hope that you abided by that. Before we jump back into the narrative here in Daniel 3, let me just quickly review for a bit what we saw last week. The king of Babylon, a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, has built a golden image that's 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. And he's called all of his government officials together, representing all of the nations that he has conquered, for a dedication ceremony of this image. And though we don't know exactly what this was an image of, it appears to be an image that declared that religious pluralism would be the law of the land. In other words, the idea that there are many gods who are all equally valid. He was saying, bow down and worship this image that declares that religious pluralism is going to be the law of the land. Nebuchadnezzar wants to force all of the people of all the nations he has conquered to agree to this. You'll be free to worship any god or any gods that you want, but you cannot say that your god is exclusive. You cannot say that your truth represents the truth. You cannot say that your god is more authoritative than any other god. And if you don't signify your agreement with this, he is saying, by bowing down to this image, you will be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, Here's the thing. For most people who were at this dedication ceremony, that would have been no big deal. They would have easily agreed to that. They would have bowed down, no problem. Most of them were religious pluralists themselves. They came from uh, cultures, nations, in which they believed in many gods. But for the three Jewish young men that are mentioned in this passage, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is a zero hour for them because they've been taught all of their lives. In fact, they've prayed it in their morning prayers and in the evening prayers, something that's called the Hebrew Shema. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not that God is many, not that God is plural, but that God is one. So when it came time for everyone to pledge their allegiance to religious pluralism, these three young men were the only people in the assembled throng who didn't bow. 
Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have known it except for some weaselly snitches that rush to the king and they tell on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king is furious and he gives them one more chance to bow down or be thrown into the furnace. And then he says in verse 15, circle this, underline it, highlight it, whatever you have to do. He says, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? If I throw you into the furnace, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? It's important. I'm going to come back to that in just a few minutes. Watch how these three young men respond to the king and his question. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace... The God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty. That we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. And what I want to do in the remaining moments that we have is I want to observe three principles from these young men's actions for how to respond in your zero hour, if you should ever face one. Whatever degree of seriousness, how should you respond if you ever find yourself in your own personal zero hour? As I said, many of the leading Christian thinkers in the country think that this is going to happen. Would you be prepared for it? Would you know how to respond? This is what we're doing. This is what we're looking at here. How do you respond if you ever find your, found yourself being persecuted for your faith in Christ? Here's the first. Be submissive to the authority that's over you. Now, that would be extremely difficult, wouldn't it? To be submissive to the authority over you if you were being persecuted. But I don't know if you noticed that these young men were so respectful, so submissive to the king. They refer to him very respectfully as king. In verse 16, they call him your majesty. In verses 17 and 18, no attempt here to undermine his authority. They're not trying to drag his name through the mud. They're not trying to sully the king's reputation. They don't seek to overthrow him and set up another government. And even though they will refuse to obey his command, they don't try to call attention to themselves and to their civil disobedience. They're not even trying to get other people to follow their example. There are no hashtag campaigns. There are no Facebook rants. Even though the king is abusing his authority, these young men respect the office, the authority that God has allowed this man to have over their lives, and yet they do not compromise what they believe. We will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the principle of submitting to authority extends to any authority over your life, and it also includes 
any political leader. If these guys were submissive and respectful facing death, how much more so facing anything less than death? I'm often, I'm often troubled by the things that believers in Christ say and do publicly and in social media regarding political leaders that they don't agree with. It's okay to disagree. It's okay to engage in the political process, but it's never okay for believers in Christ to be disrespectful. Make sure that the tweets and the Facebook, uh, the things you write on Facebook are respectful to those in authority over you, even if you stridently disagree with what they stand for. Always be respectful. And should you ever find yourself in a situation in which an authority, maybe it's at work, maybe it's somebody at school, Maybe it's a teacher at school. Maybe it is a political leader. But if you ever find yourself in a situation in which they require you to violate God's explicit commands, refuse to do so. But refuse in a way that is respectful and submissive. Here's the second principle. Don't argue. Nebuchadnezzar threatens these guys with a blazing furnace, and then he taunts them with the question, what God could deliver you from my hands? He's talking trash to them. He's trying to pull them off sides. But they don't argue with him. They say in verse 16, it's not necessary for us to defend ourselves. In other words, to argue with you. Now, now listen to me. Don't misunderstand. There is absolutely a place for an intellectual defense of Christianity. There are places and times for that. But you know what? A vast majority of the time, the best and most influential way to defend Christianity is just to quietly live the truth. Just to quietly live it out. In fact, what's so funny about this passage is that these three young men are so polite so calm and so peaceful, and the one who is frothing at the mouth in this passage is the king. He's losing his mind. His life isn't on the line, but he's losing his mind. He's enraged. Now, I want to just stop there for a moment, and you may remember that that last week I said that Nebuchadnezzar's logic behind building this image is the same logic that religious pluralists today use to advocate being tolerant of all religions. His logic is that if people like these three Jewish men, if they're allowed to believe that their God is exclusive, that their God is the God above all others, his logic is it's going to lead to intolerance of other gods, which will lead to war or will lead to totalitarianism in which one group forces their beliefs on another group. But would you notice here in this scene, who is being intolerant? It's not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the men of the faith that says that there is only one God. They're tolerant to the point of being willing to die. They're not forcing anything on anyone here. Who in this passage is being the most intolerant? Well, it's Nebuchadnezzar, the one who's the pluralist, who's demanding tolerance or death. Do you see the irony in that? You can't demand tolerance without becoming intolerant yourself. 
I meet a lot of people who advocate religious tolerance, but who are offended by Christianity's belief that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one shall pass to the Father but through him. This is offensive to them, even even angering to them. But if you believe in tolerance, it has to extend to every religion, or you are being intolerant. Now, I want you to understand, Christians believe in tolerance. A few years ago, uh, I met a young man who was deeply offended that City Church, when we first began, met in what was then called the Center, is now called the Old National Events Plaza. He's deeply offended that the city allowed us to meet there for worship. He said it shouldn't be used for a religious event. And as he argued with me, and as, he, as part of making his point, he asked me how I would feel if an Islamic group were allowed to use the civic center for their worship. I said, and I think it surprised him, I said, I would have no problem at all. No problem at all. They're taxpayers too. They have a right to use the same facilities we use to practice their faith. Christianity, rightly understood, can never lead to intolerance on the part of Christians or totalitarianism on the part of Christians. It just can't. Now, I know, sure, you would say, well, the the Crusades. Uh, Maybe you would mention uh, Westboro Baptist Church, and you'd say those are examples of Christians that are intolerant, and and, uh, to uh, uh, the Crusades led to totalitarianism. But remember, what I just said was that Christianity rightly understood couldn't lead to intolerance or totalitarianism. The people at Westboro Baptist have no idea what Christianity is about. The Crusades were not examples of Christianity rightly understood. And for those of you who are in city life groups, one of the questions that you're going to be asked this week is to think about why it is true that Christianity can never lead, if it's rightly understood, it can never lead to intolerance, and it can never lead to totalitarianism. It's just not possible. You're going to be asked to think about that this week and discuss it in the context of your group. Okay. What I really want you to see there is that by not arguing, the quiet dignity of these three young men reveals the intolerance of the king. If you ever find yourself at your own personal zero hour, be submissive to the authority over you, and don't argue. And then here's the third lesson from these three young men. And I think this is the hardest of all of them. Embrace suffering as a cost of faith. Embrace suffering as a cost of faith. This is what every person in history who's ever been persecuted for their faith in Christ. It's what every person today who is being persecuted, even right now for their faith in Christ, it's what every one of them has done. They have embraced suffering as a cost of their faith. Look at what these guys say uh, to Nebuchadnezzar again in verses 17 and 18. They said, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, 
The God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, I had to think about this quite a bit because at first it made no sense to me. On the one hand, they're saying God is able and he will deliver them. But then they come back and they say, even if he doesn't deliver us. And I was thinking about that and I thought, well, that doesn't make sense. If you're sure he's going to deliver you, then why allow for the possibility that he might not? But I finally realized what's happening here. These, these three young men are just, they're thinking more globally than just their own individual lives. They aren't saying that they know God will deliver them personally from suffering. I don't know if you've ever heard people pray something like this. Oh God, we believe for, we claim your deliverance from such and such. Why do they do that? Well, the reason is they've been sold a bill of goods that faithfulness to God guarantees freedom from suffering. And there is no truth to that whatsoever. Jesus Christ told his disciples explicitly that we would suffer persecution for following him. No, you see, these young men have no assurance that they personally will be saved from this suffering. They know God can deliver them, but not that he will deliver them personally. What they're saying is that even if he doesn't deliver them personally, that makes him no less powerful and no less faithful to them because God will deliver their people. That's what they mean, the Jewish people, from the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. That's how closely they identify with their people. That even if he doesn't deliver us three, he's going to deliver us as a people from your hand, Nebuchadnezzar. Do you realize that one of the ways that God is glorified in the world is through the suffering of his people? When these men refuse to bow down to this image, whether God comes through for them or not, What they're saying is that they so love this God, they so want his name to be exalted in the world that they'd rather suffer individually than deny him because whether they live or die isn't the main thing. The main thing is that in the end, God will be triumphant. You see, this is what, again, every person who has ever been persecuted for their faith in Christ has said, has believed, has thought to themselves. Whether I live or die, whether I suffer or not, the main thing is that God's name is glorified. I, want, I love him so much, I would rather his name be glorified than avoid this persecution. And so they have embraced the suffering. They embrace the suffering as a cost of their faith in Christ. There are people this morning around the world who have been imprisoned for their faith in Christ who are suffering torture for their faith in Christ because they embraced their suffering as a cost of their faith in Christ. We haven't had to do that here in America. And so this whole idea of suffering for faith in Christ is kind of foreign to us. But if you were in your own personal zero hour, Would you embrace suffering as a cost of your faith in Christ? Do you now? I know that the idea 
that you might actually have to suffer for your faith in Christ seems far-fetched to many of you. But I want you to listen to this. This past week, I came across an article from a scholarly journal that I follow, and the article was titled, and by the way, those of you who are in the medical profession, you may want to listen to this. The article was titled, Pro-Lifers Get Out of Medicine. And the title referred to an abstract that had been written in none other than the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine. It was written by two, this abstract was written by two preeminent bioethicists who advocate in this abstract that doctors should no longer be able to conscientiously object on the basis of their faith to performing abortions or being a part of them. Medical professionals would either be required to provide the abortion or find a doctor for the patient who will provide an abortion and by extension be a part of the abortion itself. And I want you to listen to how the authors conclude this abstract. Here's what they said. Healthcare professionals who are unwilling to accept these limits have two choices. Select an area of medicine such as radiology that will not put them in situations that conflict with their personal morality or If there is no such area, leave the profession. Let me ask you something. What would you do if you were a doctor who believes in Christ and who objects to abortion? What would you do if you were a doctor in that situation? Think about how long you've studied. Think about how many years you've put into schooling, residency, and the years that you've been practicing. Think about how much sleep you lost in school, how much debt you took on, how much debt you still have left. And all of a sudden, your profession says to you, deny Christ or you can't be a doctor anymore. Think about your lifestyle. Think about your kids' educations. What would you do if you were in that situation? Let me ask you this. Maybe I should just ask this question. What could possibly inspire you to choose to stand up for Christ in that situation rather than to capitulate and deny Christ? What could possibly inspire you to that? Well, I want you to look at what happens after the king has thrown these three men in the fire. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and he asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar, in the intervening verses, he calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the furnace. And and all of his governmental officials gather around to see this incredible miracle. These three haven't been harmed by this fire at all. In fact, they don't even smell like fire, the text says. And then in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him. 
and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. You guys remember the king's taunt earlier? Remember the trash talk? Then what God, if I throw you into the blazing furnace, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Nebuchadnezzar got his answer. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's who can do this. But here's the question. Who's this fourth man? Who looks like a son of the gods? He's walking around. Nebuchadnezzar refers to this fourth man as as an angel. Who is this? Well, in the Old Testament, there are a few occasions where there is a particular figure that shows up in human form that is referred to as the angel of the Lord. Not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. Now, see if you recognize the concept that I'm going to throw at you here. What we have here is someone who is from God, who is human, and who looks like the Son of God. Who is this? Yeah, Jesus. This is Jesus who is in the furnace with these men. This is what theologians often refer to as the pre-incarnate Jesus. In other words, he appears in the Old Testament before his official appearance in the New Testament. What could possibly inspire you in your own personal zero hour to willingly suffer persecution like, for instance, the loss of your profession, the loss of your wealth, the loss of the ability to get an education, the loss of your life? What could possibly inspire you in those instances to stand up for your faith instead of denying Christ? Well, notice, notice here that the Spirit of God working through Daniel is trying to get us to see something that we can understand today, but Daniel never could. And here it is. Notice, God didn't save them by just snapping his fingers. He could have done that. Could have saved them by just speaking them being saved from this fire. Or he could have prevented them from being thrown into the furnace in the first place, but he didn't do any of those things. What did he do? What did he do? How did God rescue them? He rescued them by going into the furnace with them and for them. Now, what's the point of that? Actually, there are two, and I'll I'll close with these. What inspires anyone who has ever endured persecution for their faith in Christ is this, that God in the person of Jesus has shown his love for you by being thrown into the ultimate furnace of God's wrath on the cross. That's what inspires anyone to suffer persecution. Why did he do that? Because your sins had to be paid for. It wasn't because you could just believe in any other God and it would be okay. And oh, by the way, if you happen to believe in Jesus, he's the one that that allows himself to be nailed on a cross. No, that would be ridiculous. 
It's because there was no other way. Your sins had to be paid for, and there was no other way. He took your punishment of death so that you could live. Who in their right mind wouldn't love a God like that? Who in their right mind wouldn't be willing to suffer for a king, a God like that, who rather than demanding your suffering like Nebuchadnezzar, suffered for you? But there's also something else that the Spirit of God is showing us here. He's showing us that whatever whatever little furnaces, remember Jesus was thrown into the ultimate furnace of God's wrath on the cross. Whatever little furnaces we may have to face for his name, and all of them are little compared to what Jesus endured on the cross. Whatever little furnaces we may have to face for his name, he will walk into those furnaces with us. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You will never suffer alone. In other words, this. If you know he was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you, then you also know he will walk in the little furnaces with you. And so whatever furnace you face, if you keep your eyes focused on the cross of Christ, you can face those furnaces with all of the calm and the peace and the courage that these men had. In fact, I would argue that the miracle that you're likely to miss here in this passage is that because of their faith in Christ, these men were, in a sense, if you will, spiritually fireproofed before they were physically fireproofed. How else do you experience this kind of calm, this kind of peace, this kind of courage, this kind of respect in the face of what is the most torturous death imaginable? Don't be afraid of persecution. If you're a believer in Christ, don't worry today how you will respond then. Whatever comes, if you know he was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you, then you know that he will walk in the little furnace of life with you, whatever that furnace may be. And as a result, you will be able to face whatever comes with all of the peace and the calm and the courage that these men did. Would you bow your heads with me? We are tempted, Lord Jesus, when we talk about the possibility of persecution. We're tempted to be afraid. Lord, would you remind us today that greater is he who is in us who believe than he who is in the world? Lord, should we ever find ourselves in these situations? Would you enable us to keep our eyes focused on the cross? We would be reminded that if you suffered for us there on the cross in the ultimate furnace of God's wrath, you'll certainly walk with us in any little furnace and any little persecution that we face. Lord, would you inspire us with that? Would you give us courage with that? Lord, uh, for those who are here today who may not 
believe in Christ. Maybe they don't understand Christ. Maybe they, maybe they came here today thinking, well, one day I'll clean up my act and, and then I'll give my life to God. Or would you remind them today, would you teach them today, would you speak into their hearts today that Christianity is not about them cleaning up their acts, but it's about Christ and what he did for us on the cross while we were still sinners. Would you bring them, Lord, to a place where they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, on his death for the forgiveness of their sins and his resurrection, for their justification in you. Lord, we thank you so much for the truths and the men that are represented here in the book of Daniel, but we know that all of these men were there to point us ultimately towards you. It's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray. We have a saying here at City Church that goes like this, the cross changes everything. In his cross, we see Jesus walking into the fire of God's wrath and punishment against sin for you and for me and for everyone who believes. So if or when we're faced with the fire of persecution, we can know that Jesus will be with us there as well. Thank you again for joining the City Church Evansville podcast. We'd love to have you join us here on a Sunday morning at either 9.15 or 11 a.m. at 314 Market Street in downtown Evansville.